Welcome back to another edition of the JDD podcast, Ask an Investigator, brought to you by Cypher Pharmaceuticals. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Friedman from the GW School of Medicine and Health Sciences. We're very fortunate today to have with us Dr. Ani Sinha. He is the blistering disease bomber and as well as the Rita M. and Ralph T. Belling professor and chair of the Department of Dermatology at University of Buffalo in Buffalo, New York. Dr. Sinha has published extensively, and his research focuses on understanding the genetic underpinnings and immunologic underpinnings of many complex skin diseases. He's received numerous honors and awards for his academic achievements, and once again, we're very fortunate to have him with us today. Thanks for, for being here. Glad to be here with you, Adam. So today we're going to be talking about your JDD manuscript uh, in the February edition titled Longitudinal Tracking of Autoantibody Levels in a Pemphigus Vulgaris Patient, Support for a Role of Antidesmoglian 1 Autoantibodies as Predictors of Disease Progression. Definitely a, a mouthful. Uh, you know, what, what was the impetus for publishing this here and now? Well, um, let me give you some background. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, I've been uh, interested in investigating blistering disorders for a number of years, um, and uh, we are, are, one of the challenges that we face in, in treating and managing patients is that we don't have good biomarkers or predictors of disease progression. In other words, we don't know when somebody's going into a flare or when they're going into remission. Now, we have been doing, taking a broad approach in our laboratory uh, to look at various components of the immune system, uh, including the autoantibodies that are key to, to conferring disease, to track them in large uh, uh, groups of patients and ultimately longitudinally to see if we can get more uh, detailed insights into what immunologic changes happen that can predict the course of disease. So that was the impetus for doing the study. And in this study specifically, we focused on the two uh, most important autoantibodies uh, linked to Pemphigus vulgaris, and those are anti-desmoglian-3 and anti-desmoglian-1 autoantibodies. Now, I, th I thought something interesting you brought up uh, towards the end of your paper was that um, there was persistent anti-desmoglian-3 versus even in the patient with remission, um, yet the desmoglian-1 definitely fluctuated with, with their progress. Uh, what, what do you make of that? Well, <clears throat> most, uh, uh, the vast majority of pemphigus patients have uh, harbor anti-desmoglian-3 antibodies, and, um, and a little over half also carry anti-desmoglian-1 antibodies. And uh, so these are commonly used for diagnosis and for tracking disease activity. But while there's a general correlation on the antibody titers as measured by ELISA for both antidesmoglian 1 and 3 with disease activity, so increasing titers generally correlate with increasing disease activity, and decreasing titers generally correlate with uh, decreasing uh, uh, or improved disease uh, um, uh, uh, course of disease, so less disease activity or less disease burden, that's not always the case. There's not always a tight correlation. And so um, there have been a number of papers in the literature that, that uh, have varying results uh, indicating how strong that correlation is. We notice that there is 
often a disconnect between the level, the titer levels and the disease activity. And when we started to track these antibodies in patients that were either in high activity or flare and those in remission, we saw that the correlation was more tightly linked with anti-desmoglein 1 antibodies rather than the most common antibody, anti-desmoglein 3, at least in those patients that carry both antibodies. Now, in this paper, in the JDD paper from February uh, um, of this year, we actually were able to test this hypothesis and, and, and look at our data following an individual patient with a pemphigus patient that we uh, tracked uh, uh, over several months, or actually two and a half years, and through periods of disease activity and remission. And what we noticed was that while, in general, both the anti-desmoglein-3 and the anti-desmoglein-1 antibodies rose with increasing disease activity and fell as the patient improved, especially after being uh, treatment with rituximab, the anti-desmoglein-3 antibody remained above uh, in the positive or above detectable levels even when the patient was in remission, while the anti-desmoglein-1 antibody uh, decreased 11 months prior to remission and, and then and remained at below detectable levels, indicating that the anti-desmoglein-1 antibody is maybe a better indicator of when a patient is about to go into remission and maybe a better marker to track. And this is important because uh, uh, typically uh, the anti-desmoglein-3 antibody is the one that's most looked at in terms of falling disease activity. But what we're saying in this paper is that it may be most important to look at anti-desmoglein-1 antibodies, at least in those patients who have uh, both antibodies, 3 and 1, anti-3 and 1, and use that as a better biomarker for predicting um, uh, uh, clinical course and response to treatment. How feasible do you think it would be, you know, in clinical practice to f- use this as a biomarker? Uh, you know, obviously we have a, a wide array of treatments, you know, immunosuppressing treatments, biologics. Uh, none of them are perfect, some better than others. You know, how realistic is that someone can utilize, you know, indirect immunofluorescence to, f- mo- you know, monitor, you know, this change over time, especially from an insurance coverage perspective? Right. Um, <clears throat> I think it's, it's very feasible. Uh, the ELISA test that we use is very simple and uh, not that expensive. It can be done um, uh, very quickly. And the advantage here is that, so if, you're, if, if you've given a treatment and the patient is yet to respond clinically uh, com- uh, to, to com- complete remission, uh, complete clinical remission, we may get an indicator by monitoring the anti-desmoglein 1 levels and see if those are falling, and especially if they go below the, uh, the cutoff level of, of positivity on the ELISA test, that may be an indication that you're headed in the right direction in your management that uh, stick with that treatment. It's working even if it has not completely manifest in terms of, uh, of the clinical presentation and the lesions, but the antibodies may uh, the decrease in the anti-desmoglein 1 antibodies may precede that and tell the clinician that you're on the right track. We're on the right track in managing this patient and, uh, and, and, and that, deep, that drop in anti-desmoglein 1 antibody levels foretells um, the uh, transition to a remittent phase. 
Yeah, I mean, to me, that, that seems to be the, the most important message here because how often do we try a therapy, the patient isn't clinically responding, and all of a sudden we're like, oh, we gotta do something else, we gotta switch over, and you start over from scratch. I mean, this, this to me, would prevent that, hopefully in many cases, that you can, one, reassure the patient, look, you know, this test is telling me that it's working, it just, your, your skin hasn't caught up to what's going on in the blood. Um, you know, I think that that could definitely change how we think about these medications, how quickly they're working, and they may already be working even though we can't visibly see that. Do you, do you currently use this as kind of a marker for how these medications are working in your own practice? That's a great question. Uh, do we practice what we've learned? And and uh, <laughs> uh, and and so we do. While we're very you know locked up in the lab and doing a lot of this stuff, it's fascinating stuff to try and understand these diseases. Our goal, of course, is to gain understanding to help treatment and management, and so. With this type of information, we are starting to do this. I have a dedicated autoimmune blistering clinic week, uh, weekly uh, in, in our faculty practice, and we are starting to track these patients um, more regularly and put this information to clinical use. And I'll say one other thing to extend this. We focused here on the two main uh, antibodies that have been historically associated with pemphigus. That's antidesmolene 3 and antidesmolene 1. But in the last few years, there's been increasing evidence that the antibody response, the autoantibody response, is actually much broader and more complex uh, in pemphigus. And we published a paper in Proceedings of the National Academy of, of Science, PNAS, uh, at the, uh, in um, 2016, where we had developed in our own lab um, autoantigen arrays where we were able to screen patient serum from uh, a number of patients in controls for uh, their, their, uh, the presence of not just two antibodies, but 15 different uh, putative autoantigen targets that might be uh, present in pemphigus patients that were indicated in the literature. And just to quickly summarize, we found um, six hits, including desmoline 3 and 1, that were, uh, were also important. In other words, by hits, I mean other protein targets that patients with pemphigus had antibodies to. And we could uh, uh, see that this was genetically linked to the particular HLA molecules that are very strongly associated with pemphigus. Now, most recently, we have extended those studies to make an autoantigen array with uh, of 40 different antigens and, um, and test screened over 700 patients in controls. And we're just writing this up for publication and found that there are a number of uh, uh, autoantigen targets that are even uh, more than those six. And, and we, we validated those six targets and we've got a, a number of other ones as well. And most interestingly, because we had so many patients and we have very detailed uh, clinical information, so we could um, have a lot of annotated clinical data linked to the autoantibody response. So we could link specific profiles to active disease in remission into mucosal-only disease, mucocutaneous disease. In other words, that we could classify uh, patients and their clinical characteristics and even their course of disease uh, based on not just two markers, but a number of markers. 
uh, that we could screen with this autoantigen arrays. Now, once you make the arrays, um, uh, uh, the idea is that it's very easy and quick to screen. We did all these experiments with 700 different uh, patients and controls in a matter of days. So um, what I envision in the future is that we'll be able to have maybe even the, at the bedside, at the, at the clinic, in the clinic, a little machine that you have these arrays are printed on a glass slide and basically you have uh, a four by 12 grid in each and so there are 48 arrays on a glass, uh, a glass microscope slide, and each of those arrays is a 12 by 12 grid, so 144 elements. So you can do an incredible number of screenings at one pass, and you can quickly uh, get an, uh, define an autoantibody profile with all these targets, and and then uh, we uh, this work links specific profiles to certain. Uh, clinical presentations and potentially prognosis. So in this new study, we also tracked a number of patients longitudinally and then did test samples that we made predictions and that we can show that using these complex profiles or comprehensive profiles, let's put it that way, we could um, predict what kind of uh, disease a patient might, what kind of disease presentation a patient might have or even uh, what type of disease phase they would be going to. So all this collectively is heading us towards uh, one, a more detailed understanding of the of the of, uh, of the nuances and the complexity of the auto anti uh, autoimmune response in in pemphigus, and this could be applied to other auto uh, uh, immune diseases as well. And then also that we could li link these immune disturbances to specific clinical presentations that can help uh, classify patients, predict the course of disease, predict response to treatment, and then therefore bring a more rational and ultimately individualized and personalized approach to treatment. And this is why I think this paper in the JDD and as part of the bigger set of of, of this line of investigation that we're doing in the lab, this is why we think this is uh, this work is important, so that we'll have more scientific and rational um, uh, 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 reasons to to manage our patients uh, uh, that's rooted in, in science and, and 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 biological rationale, and that these tools will be allow us to much better uh, serve our patients with more precise uh, and effective uh, management strategies. Right now, we chase our tail. Patient gets uh, a flare, we try and hammer it down with steroids and other immunosuppressives, and then we wait uh, until it goes, uh, the disease uh, activity goes down, and then at some point they flare again, we bash it down again. We want to be much more precise and effective and tailored and personalized in our, in our treatment strategies. So, so how far away do you think we are from these uh, lab-on-a-chip approaches? You know, that's always a uh, difficult uh, uh, terrain to walk in. And, and it, but theoretically, I think that all this is possible now, now to, uh, uh, in, in present day. But to make this standardized, to make this the standard of care, to make it so that um, the costs are very low, um, my guess is we're talking five, you know, five to ten years. 
but that's hard to say. Sometimes things take longer than you think, and sometimes things, uh, uh, you know, you reach a tipping point in terms of the of the manufacturing and and the utility of these things, and things can happen very quickly. But there's no doubt we are along we are walking along this path. Not just our lab, of course, you know, lots of other labs and and investigators around the world are taking similar approaches to get us down that that. Uh, that prompt to the promised land of personalized medicine. <laughs> That's absolutely incredible. Uh, well, when we come back after a word from our sponsor, we're going to delve right in and get some practical pearls about how you, you approach, treat, and manage uh, your, your pemphigus patients. This podcast is brought to you by Cypher Pharmaceuticals, a specialty company with a focus on dermatology. Their goal is to bring you best-in-class skincare solutions for unmet medical needs. Currently, they bring you Nuvail and Citivig. They are continually expanding their prescription product line to offer dermatologists like you and patients new and better options to treat skin conditions. And we're back here with Dr. Ani Sinha, international leader in autoimmune blistering diseases. Let's just get right to it. How, you know, on, on those weekly autoimmune blistering disease, uh, disease clinic days, you know, new patient comes in, no biopsy diagnosis, sitting there. What is your first approach? How do you come to that patient? How do you kind of work through, you know, what you want to do right then and there and, of course, plan for the future? Right. So when a new patient comes in, um, we uh, we like to start absolutely from the beginning. Even if a diagnosis has been made, we want to review the diagnostic criteria. That is first on clinical grounds. Do they have uh, lesions uh, that are... Uh, that are representative um, with one of the blistering disorders. Let's talk about pemphigus vulgaris as the as the model uh, blistering disorder. And so, do they have uh, blisters or erosions uh, or flaccid? You know, uh, usually in pemphigus vulgaris, you have very flaccid um, uh, blisters or just erosions because the split is in the. Um, uh, in the basal layer, just above the basal layer of the epidermis. So, so one, we check for clinical presentation. Two, we want to make sure that we have uh, routine pathology and H&E stain. And typically, you see acanthalysis on the biopsy uh, with the the uh, uh, what they call the row of tombstoning of the basal layer of keratinocytes. Third, we would like to have a uh, indirect and perhaps a direct immunofluorescence, uh, which we can um, uh, send off to. We're very fortunate in Buffalo to have the Boitner Labs, uh, international leaders in uh, immunofluorescence, and uh, we usually collaborate with them to get those studies done. And finally, we take um, serum and do the ELISA tests, in particular for the antidesmolian 3 and 1 autoantibodies that are the primary um, markers of disease in pemphigus. In the future, we would like to expand this to the uh, larger list of antigens, uh, potential autoantigens uh, that that may be targeted in pemphigus and do this not on an ELISA, but a, a, a glass slide-based array or a, a protein, protein chip, a multiplexed assay that way. That would be in the future. Additionally, in our lab, and for our, a lot of patients, we do HLA typing. So we take some blood for DNA, and we, um, tra- uh, we do HLA typing 
many years ago when I was at Stanford in 1987, I had sequenced the HLA genes associated with pemphigus in over 95% of Caucasian uh, and, and Jewish patients type as either DR beta 10402 or DQ beta 10503. And so these are very strong uh, DNA markers, genetic markers that are linked to disease, and that helps us establish the diagnosis. So those are the things that we first uh, do when we see a patient. We may also do, uh, on the clinical activity, a PDI score, Pemphigus Disease and Activity Index, that was um, uh, uh, formulated a few years back, and uh, it gives a score, a numerical score, that we can track um, uh, patients, and, and it's particularly useful for clinical trials work or our investigative work that we could link um, clinical presentation, a link to this, the PDI score, uh, similar to a PASI score in psoriasis, and then um, link that to the uh, immune and genetic uh, markers that we're following in the lab. So that's the first thing when we do when we see a patient. And then we, of course, decide on a management strategy. And, um, and our general approach is that we still uh, systemic steroids, prednisone, is the, is the first-line therapy and the standard of care. Uh, and typically, we go one milligram per kilogram, um, usually ends up being 60 to 80 milligrams per day. And we continue that until new lesions stop evolving or, or developing and then taper down um, uh, as we typically start a secondary agent like um, Celsept uh, uh, or Imuran. But more recently, we are starting to include rituximab very early in the, um, in the, in the, uh, as part of the treatment ladder. And the typical dose that we use is um, uh, uh, 1,000 milligrams on day one IV infusion and repeated day 15 and then six months later, repeat that, that uh, double cycle. So uh, again, at day one and day 15. That's the rheumatoid now, arthritis patients, protocol, correct? Yes, exactly, exactly. Okay. Okay. And um, now, uh, one other thing I like that, sometimes uh, there, we still feel there's a role for IVIG, especially in very rapidly uh, uh, evolving disease with, with uh, high disease activity. Um, and that is usually two grams per kilogram per month, and that's given over two to, to three days typically by IV infusion. And um, that seems to, uh, because the IVIG typically works faster, rituximab often because of the way, because it targets uh, uh, the B cells uh, that produce the antibodies, uh, and it doesn't get rid of the antibodies that are already present in the patient, that sometimes that can uh, take a little longer to work. So, and then of course we adjust, uh, and it's it's a little bit ad hoc, or, or very much ad hoc actually. That we um, we we tailor that general approach um, and the specific medications and the, and the dosage and timing of these medications based on an individual patient and their presentation, how severe is the disease, the overall. Uh, health of the patient and clinical setting, um, etc. I'm so happy you brought up IVIG and rituxan. Um, 
no question, plenty of evidence to support their use. My, my own personal difficulty has been getting them approved and covered and getting our infusion center on board, uh, given the extreme cost. How do you get these covered by insurance for these patients? It's, it's definitely uh, can be a challenge. We, we are used to um, getting, you know, the prior us writing letters back and forth. We typically work with a number of specialty pharmacies that are also quite well equipped and have resources to uh, go to the insurance uh, insurances and get coverage. So fortunately, we've been um, successful uh, most of the time. Um, and especially for, um, you know, the, the typical the, the diagnosis of pemphigus or, or bolus pemphigoid or cicatricial pemphigoid. Um, so, uh, but it does take some effort. And I think this is why it's important for patients to get to um, uh, a center that is well-versed in, in diagnosing and managing these types of diseases because, um, you know, if, if this is something that we do, uh, you know, on a, on a routine basis, but for uh, uh, many offices, it's, it's not a routine thing and it can be a struggle to, um, to, to diagnose, treat, and, and deal with the insurances of these patients. Well, I, I, for one, can second how frustrating it can be uh, going back and forth and obviously knowing these medications will make such a huge difference in the patient's life. And, and just, you know, you're, you're look, you know, look, looking at, you know, eye, eyes that really don't don't really get it or, you know, deer and deer and headlights kind of kind of appearance. Um, so so in the setting of, you know, a patient who's doing really well, maybe on Rituxan, uh, Celsept, uh, tapered off prednisone, you know, we do have a litany of non-immunosuppressing maintenance therapies. Um, obviously, certain ones use a little more than others, like tetracyclines and niacinamide in pemphigoid. Dapsone has been reported for, for pemphigus. Um, you know, it's hit or miss sometimes with these. What, what is your feeling about these non-immunosuppressing maintenance routines? Right. <clears throat> and, and that's the confounding thing is um, when you have a lot of options and, and a lot of uh, people, you see people uh, using a lot of different therapies, you know that there's not a, 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 a great uh, solution for treatment for everybody. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, one, our, our, our therapies at the moment are not very specific. So you know, we have prednisone that knocks down the whole immune system, so you whack it down, everything. And that's effective, but, of course, we all know the serious side effects of long-term steroid use. And then even the non-steroidal immunosuppressives are a broad um, stroke. They, they, again, knock down the immune system um, rather unselectively, and even IVIG and rituxam uh, work in, with a, a broad stroke as well. Now, rituxam is heading towards more specificity because it knocks out your B cells, but knocks out you know all your B cells. Uh, so that's that. It's it's been quite effective in pemphigus, less so in bolus pemphigoid, which is a little curious. But there may be more of an inflammatory component to that, and that may be the explanation uh, compared to pemphigus vulgaris. But um, where we want to get to. And we hope that some of our work in the lab uh, will help um, uh, drive um, the field this way, is that we want to get very specific treatments and individualized treatments. So what we want is to knock out, not just knock out all the B cells, 
uh, or all the immune cells. Uh, we we want to knock out just those clones that are making the antibodies that are relevant in that patient. And remember, we talked about that some patients may have antidesmoline 3, some may have antidesmoline 3 and 1, and they may also have these broader autoimmune autoantibody profiles. So if we know the exact uh, autoantibodies that are present in a given patient, then maybe down the road we'll have more specific ways to knock out just the clones that are, that are um, uh, relevant to a given patient. The other point is that, that patients are heterogeneous, so clinical presentation is heterogeneous. Uh, there's a, a lot of heterogeneity that we sometimes underappreciate in, in most, uh, most diseases. And so one pemphigus patient, they may be diagnosed as pemphigus, but they present very differently and have different clinical characteristics and a different uh, natural course of disease than uh, another uh, patient. And we don't know the genetic or biological and immunological underpinnings of that exactly. We're starting to look at that with our work that broadly profiles the autoantibody repertoire. We're also looking in our lab at the T-cell level, the cytokine level, the genetic level, to see if we can construct a, a genetic and biological profile that of disturbances that are linked not just to PV, but specific presentations or, or sub-phenotypes of PV that will then let us better understand why, uh, what exactly is going wrong in an individual or a, or a subgroup of patients. And, and from that information, ultimately develop more targeted and individualized therapies. That's the holy grail. That's where we're headed. Um, but there's a lot of work to do. And the reason why pemphigus ends up being a really good model to study autoimmunity and complex disease in general, because we actually have a fair bit of information, starting from those HLA genes that I sequenced way back in 87 at Stanford, that gave us uh, the beginning of the roadmap of how disease happens. And from that, uh, my lab and others have been then looking at the details of the T-cell response, which then supports the uh, autoreactive B-cells that produce these autoantibodies um, and, and, and the supporting cytokine network that is orchestrates all this autoimmune response. And so we actually have some uh, reasonable information at all those levels of, of, uh, of immune disturbances. And we're also in the lab starting to look beyond the HLA genes to look at other genetic factors that are relevant for patients that conf to confer genetic risk. The HLA genes are necessary but not sufficient at the genetic level. These, these complex diseases uh, are all multifactorial. That means they have uh, uh, genetic and environmental factors, but, and, then, and they're also polygenic, so there are more than one gene uh, is involved. So by why, why we are uh, stressing uh, uh, to look at all these, these aspects of the, disreg of the, the genetic elements that are, that are linked to disease and the details of the immune disturbances at all the components of the immune response is so we can better understand disease mechanisms and better understand the exact pathways, the genes, uh, uh, pathways and molecules that are relevant to disease 
in patients but also subgroups of patients so that down the road we can be much more specific and tailored to our therapy. That's where we're headed. Right now we're at a very uh, almost primitive stage, although we've come a long ways. It used to be the Pemphigus patients, you know, had a had an 85% mortality rate. But once we have steroids and now we have um, uh, other immunosuppressives and getting a little bit more selective uh, therapies with rituximab, we are have reduced that to, uh, mortality rate to 10 to 15%, but it's still too high. And and that's mortality. We still often don't manage some patients as best as uh, as effectively and as as quickly as we'd like to. So we want to get that better. And by the way, this this is still a serious disease. Um, you know, we had um, three patients in our in our clinic uh, die last year, despite our best efforts. So it is uh, 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 still a life threatening uh, autoimmune condition. And we've done much better in the last few decades, but we still have a ways to go. And that's why I really stress the importance of doing the biology and the genetics behind these diseases. Um, it's not just esoteric. It is so that we can uh, ultimately treat patients much, much better and more in a more targeted and personalized way uh, that we're more... Uh, uh, efficacious and also avoid nonspecific side effects of, of, of these um, uh, uh, medications that, that we often commonly use at the moment. That's absolutely incredible, and uh, we all hope you, you keep fighting the good fight. Because clearly, you know, we we're, we we've, we we've broken in there, but clearly, there's a lot more work to be done. And, and it's, it's great that, that folks like you are, are are pushing ahead. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, There's been Dr. Ani Sinha talking about autoimmune blistering diseases. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we all learned so much, and hopefully, can approach these patients uh, with a little more uh, you know firepower, um, you know, with with your work and the work of others in this area. Um, and also, the rest of you definitely stay tuned for future editions of the JDD podcast, Ask an Investigator, coming next month. Thanks to Cypher Pharmaceuticals, the makers of Nuvale and Citivig, for sponsoring this episode. Be sure to let them know you enjoyed this podcast.